Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. It's a beautiful day out there. Of course, if you're listening by podcast, you won't be aware of just how lovely the weather is. We're beginning to go into Melbourne summer. Lovely stuff. Uh, it's really nice in the morning, but there's hardly anybody there. We All we see is the detrius of the night before. Lots of detrius this morning. Lots of broken glass and they must have had a, a wild old time. Well, today, uh, last week I promised uh, you an interview with uh, Paul Christie, who is a peace activist who's going to court over a... Uh, uh, a peaceful demonstration at Pine Gap near Alice Springs, the uh, non-existent American base that's up there in uh, near Alice Springs. Yes, it's an ERTSAT American base on Australian soil. <laughs> we'll hear a little bit about why it's ERTSAT in a little while. Uh, we're going to talk to uh, uh, Paul. Paul just wasn't awake at the time I rang, but he promises me we'll be able to have a chat with him a bit later. Uh, we're going to start off, though, explaining a little bit about American bases. We're going to listen to Professor David Vine. David Vine uh, came out for the IPAN conference. That's the International Peaceful Australia Network. They uh, He has written uh, tomes on American bases. He's a quite a fascinating fellow. So we'll hear a little bit. We'll get our update. Later on, we're going to revisit the refugee issue that's been... Uh, uh, taking to the streets in support of uh, Manus Island detainees who are now being left high and dry. We're going to get uh, a chat with someone, Chris Bean, uh, Breen, uh, from uh, the uh, Refugee Action uh, Committee, the RAC. Uh, we're going to have a yarn with him about what's going on there. They had a big uh, thing last night. It's been ongoing, rolling uh, demonstrations to raise awareness of uh, the plight of the people on Manus. We're also hopefully going to have a uh, chat with Nero, who's uh, a Tamil refugee who was at uh, MITA, MITA, for eight years. He's been out for two years, and he's the person behind the eight days of solidarity for refugees uh, events that are going on, going to go on for the next week uh, in support of his fellows. Uh, so sit back, listen. Kevin will be here, of course, telling you about what's going on in the world. Uh, and uh, But before we do, I want to uh, remind you of something really important that's just started at 3CR.
Excellent news, dear listener. It's that time of year. We once again are selling two delicious wines generously donated by local winemaking star and 3CR supporter Luke Lambert. At $17.50, these wines are a super bargain, labelled especially for us, and they're even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. Perfect as a gift or to fill a raised glass to toast 3CR at those summer festivities. Give us a call on 94198377 to order, or you can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Wines are available for collection from 3CR up until December 22. Ain't no mountain high enough to keep me from them. As we enter gift-giving season, it could be a perfect gift as well as doing a very good thing in keeping 3CR, your Radical Radio, on air. Uh, Like I said, Professor David Vine is a person who has made it his uh, academic uh, focus to uh, keep Australia Australia and the world aware of what America is doing with its bases. And uh, so we'll, we'll have a, let's listen to what Professor David Vine has to say. Given the topic that I have been asked to address and, and would like to address, the global network of what are now around 800 U.S. military bases overseas and Australia's place in that network, although Alison will address that in much more detail, um, again, I, I think it critical to begin, uh, given that we are occupying indigenous land here today and given that U.S. bases are occupying indigenous lands across Australia, it's important to begin the conversation in North America, where the first U.S. bases abroad, the first U.S. extraterritorial bases, appeared in the late 18th century and continued to appear across the 19th century, enabling the expansion and conquest of uh, lands across North America uh, to the Pacific Ocean. Um, displacing and killing millions in the process. Um, And again, I want to underline the importance of seeing the commonalities in histories of colonization and dispossession. Just uh, apologies for any overlap between last night and and today. Um, Don't worry, I won't won't just say exactly the same thing as I did last night. But um, uh, again, I, I think it's important to, to point to this pattern of displacement that we see continuing outside of North America as well. Uh, 20 cases that I've documented in this time period uh, since 1898, including uh, the case of the people of Diego Garcia, the Chagosians, who were displaced, forcibly removed by the U.S. and British governments to make way for the massive military base on Diego Garcia and again, Olivia Bancou will be speaking about that this afternoon. These were the last final order from the highest ranking official in the U.S. military. I think it's just helpful to see it in black and white, how callous. Um, he had exactly three words for the Chagosians. Absolutely must go. Three more words that the U.S. military now uses to describe Diego Garcia. Footprint of freedom which I think is, of course, a painful irony that 
the U.S. military is apparently oblivious to, uh, far from a footprint of freedom, the base, of course, represents uh, the source of Chagossian suffering and the loss of their homeland, their entire way of life. So, quickly, a quick history. Um, after the appearance of U.S. bases in North America, um, you notice that there were a small number of bases for the, roughly the first 120 years of the existence of the United States after gaining independence from Britain, uh, some primarily in Hawaii and Alaska, others created after the United States seized territories from Spain in the War of 1898 and the Philippines, Guam uh, in particular, as well as Puerto Rico and the base in Guantanamo, Guantanamo Bay. You see after that that the United States acquired a, a small number of bases in the time period leading up to World War II. But it's during World War II that the United States creates a global network of military bases on other people's territory, a global network unlike any that the world had ever seen, more bases, more foreign bases than any people, nation, or empire in world history. A good number of these bases closed at the end of the war as U.S. troops, some of them, some of them, came home. Um, but you see that by the end of the Cold War, the basic structure of the system, the basic infrastructure and pattern of the system remained very much in place. During the Cold War, a, a permanent network of U.S. bases, hundreds of U.S. bases occupied by hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops became deeply entrenched, such that, so, so entrenched that after the end of the Cold War, more than two decades following the end of the Cold War, we see a network that, again, looks very much like it did at the Cold War's end. Now, the total number of bases uh, since the end of the Cold War has declined. So at the end of the Cold War, there are about 1,600 U.S. bases abroad. Now there are about 800, as I mentioned. Um, but the total number of countries in which U.S. bases appear has roughly doubled from 40 countries at the end of the Cold War to roughly 80 today. And I say roughly and estimated in terms of the numbers because there is no exhaustive, definitive list of U.S. bases abroad. The Pentagon itself doesn't have one. Um, just point to, so these, the, my estimate of 800 bases is, is a very conservative estimate, I should mention. And it comes from Pentagon figures. They compile a list of bases uh, on a more or less yearly basis. Most of the bases you'll see appear in Germany, Italy, Japan, South Korea. Um, this is the Pentagon's uh, most recent report. You see their total comes to 701 base sites, as they call them, outside the 50 states, 50 U.S. states in Washington, D.C. Uh, but many numerous bases, well-known bases, as well as secretive bases, get left off their list. So um, by my count, and I have a spreadsheet that I could make available to anyone, uh, there are roughly 800. You see that the Pentagon calls most of these bases small. So you might say, ah, you know, they're just small. If you look at the fine print, a small base can have a value of up to one billion U.S. dollars. One billion U.S. dollars. So a small base is often not so small. Um, again, I showed some of these images from last night. Um, anyone know where this is? Uh, and you can't answer if you have been at one of my prior presentations. Anyone want to guess where this U.S. base is? Looks like a suburban U.S. town. 
I heard Pine Gap. Any other guesses? This is Guantanamo Bay. I'm sure all of you have probably seen images of the prison there, but this is what most of Guantanamo Bay, the military base, looks like. Again, a not-so-small American town with all the trappings. Um, So many of the big bases uh, in the global network look, uh, indeed, like America towns, as they are often referred to, or Little Americas, uh, complete with schools, shopping, housing, uh, yoga studios, and and much more. I'm going to quickly show you a few more images because, again, I think it's important to see and visualize what this global network looks like so we don't just get caught up in the numbers. Um, So quickly, this is uh, Pine Gap, one you probably are most familiar with, Antigua and Barbuda, Bahrain, Guantanamo Bay again from an overview, Belgium, Diego Garcia, Djibouti, Greenland, Hungary, Iraq, Japan, and the U.S. is back in Iraq and uh, has never left Afghanistan, but back in Iraq and in Syria as well. Uh, Japan, the Marshall Islands, which we heard about last night, Pakistan, Qatar, Spain, U.K., and apropos to the conference going on in Germany today, this is Rammstein Air Base, where most U.S. casualties from uh, theaters of war uh, return on their way to the United States, and one of the roughly 60 bases I was able to to visit during my more than six years of research into this global network of bases. Um, just a quick, another quick overview. Um, important to point out there are troops in yet more countries. Aircraft carriers are floating bases. Um, U.S. embassies, it's helpful to compare the total number of bases to uh, the U.S.'s commitment, of course, to diplomacy and bases and consulates are, of course, uh, to some extent, um, centers of diplo- diplomacy. But as a, a, a very helpful commentator a few nights ago pointed out, they are also effectively a kind of military base, given the uh, dramatic presence of Pentagon officials in every U.S. base, sorry, every U.S. embassy overseas. What does this all cost? Um, by my, again, very conservative estimate, $150 billion U.S. dollars that the United States is spending on a yearly basis to maintain bases and troops overseas. Uh, $150 billion U.S. dollars. And that's more money than uh, the budget, the military budget of any nation on Earth except China and the United States, of course. And it's a larger budget than any U.S. government agency except the Pentagon's massive amounts of money. Just quickly, there's a well-documented pattern of damage that this infrastructure of bases has caused for decades, decades. And that's part of what my book, Base Nation, tries to to document and illustrate, um, telling the stories of people whose lives have been affected by U.S. bases abroad. And those people include locals living near the bases, as well as U.S. military personnel and their family members, uh, who in a variety of ways are themselves harmed by these bases, as well as every U.S. taxpayer, I try to point out to my U.S. readers in particular, Um, and of course everyone in a certain way uh, around the world, given the global instability that I think U.S. bases so frequently inspire. Environmental damage widespread, as many of you are well aware. Um, uh, Prostitution industries, exploitative prostitution 
prostitution industries uh, pop up outside uh, U.S. bases, often with the explicit support of U.S. military personnel. Um, certainly in, in prior decades, uh, more recently, just practices of turning uh, the other way uh, and pretending not to see what's literally right outside the gates. Um, I describe how uh, this pattern of exploitative prostitution outside of bases is part of a larger pattern of a kind of militarized masculinity that is encouraged and created by a variety of uh, elements of daily life in the U.S. military for, for men in the U.S. military, including um, objectifying USO shows like this. Um, and what I argue is that this militarized masculinity and the institutionalized prostitution overseas are part of what are, is conditioning the epidemic of sexual assault and rape one sees in the U.S. military today. Uh, the estimates show that one in three women will be the victim of a sexual assault or rape during her time in the military. Men, of course, are also assaulted, but, uh, and their absolute numbers are greater, but the percentage, of course, is lower. Um, Guam, the U.S. colony of Guam, doesn't get called a colony much, but there are uh, several remaining U.S. colonies. Why are they still colonies? Bases, in short. Um, they have been and long and are today the home to uh, scores of U.S. bases abroad, and the military very much likes the fact that they are in a state of neither independence nor full incorporation into the United States with the full democratic rights that being a state, for example, would, would give the citizens of Guam. Same is true of Puerto Rico. Um, these are images from uh, Honduras where there's been a quote-unquote temporary base since 1982. Um, underlining the sort of logistical games that get played around U.S. bases, and I know very much that that has been the case here in Australia, where, of course, there are no U.S. bases, right? Yeah, we're listening to uh, Professor David Vine. He's talking about American bases. This is to give you a, a settle you in before we have a chat with Paul Christie, who's a peace activist who was part of a peaceful demonstration at Pine Gap and who's about to go to court. Uh, just to re revise uh, our understanding of where, how American bases fit in to uh, American uh uh, power structures and where Australia fits into that and the effect of having an American base on your shores uh, has uh, for your uh, self-determination. Uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. We'll continue to listen to what uh, Professor David Vine said. He was speaking at the IPAN conference, the recent IPAN conference. Um Honduras is one of 33 examples where U.S. bases are found in undemocratic countries. Honduras's degree of democracy is, is debatable at this point, um, but the U.S. base there supported um, de facto the 2009 coup. Um, so in 33 countries uh, with uh, often ruled by repressive, murderous regimes, you see U.S. bases de facto supporting, propping up, undemocratic regimes and undemocratic systems. Um, claim, one of the long-standing claims about U.S. bases, of course, is that they spread democracy. That's why we need them, at least one of the reasons that's been the claim. Um, in these 33 cases, we see how U.S. bases are directly blocking pro-democracy movements, 
and enabling the repression of citizens around the globe. Um, numerous examples of the United States pairing, coupling, uh, and supporting uh, illegal and mafia-type organizations, including the mafias in Naples and Sicily, Italy. Um, and of course, the crimes and accidents one sees across the global network um, are a quite prominent pattern um, with horrific rapes and murders in Okinawa in particular that have inspired uh, really uh, profound levels of protest in recent years, recent decades. And of course, the other main claim about U.S. bases, as I mentioned last night, is that U.S. bases abroad are ensuring the peace and security of the world, regional security and the security of the United States. Uh, again, I, I think this argument is, is laughable or would be if the consequences weren't so grave. Um, but I think we, it's, a, it's an argument we should take on directly. Um, U.S. bases have enabled a series of wars dating to the early days of the Cold War, um, wars of, in which Australia, of course, has been intimately and deeply involved, wars from Vietnam to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, Syria today. This is a, a map, and all these maps are available on the website for the book. Free to download them, and, and you'll, I'm going to make this presentation and the one from last night available to everyone as well. Um, this map uh, shows the expansion of U.S. bases in the Persian Gulf and greater Middle East region and, and how they have uh, supported uh, a series of wars uh, in that same time period. Um, very quickly, I want to get to uh, sort of my central argument I'd like to, to share today, um, although happy to go into any of the details. Um, why has this network of bases expanded so dramatically in recent years while the total number the, the, has declined? The breadth, again, has, has roughly doubled from 40 to 80 bases. Um, that's happened for a variety of reasons. One is the expansion in the number of what are called lily pad bases, um, a global proliferation, in, especially in parts of the world where there has previously been no U.S. military presence or very little presence. Um, the Asia pivot is, is part of this pattern. Um, as I mentioned, the U.S. has been pivoting to Asia since the 19th century, um, so that in many ways there's nothing new. Um, but there, there are some important changes um, that, you, again, you, I could go into more detail later. You can consult the, the presentation. Um, Australia has been a critical part of this. And I think in short, um, Australia is an example of what um, Scott referenced last night. Um, and, and the Asia pivot more broadly is an example of, of what Scott mentioned, what, what some are calling the, the new way of war for the United States, um, a new way of war involving uh, the increasing use of foreign militaries as functional adjuncts of the United States military, um, and the increasing use of a range of military activities, beginning with bases, but then other activities like military training, military exercises, arms sales, uh, the increasing use of special operations forces around the world, essentially deepening the U.S. military presence around the world in an effort to keep host countries within the orbit of the United States. Um, and what I argue is that this is, uh, should not be seen as a purely military strategy. This is not a purely military strategy. This is a global political economic strategy that the United States 
has been pursuing to try to hang on to its position as the world's wealthiest country and most powerful nation. Um, with the rise of China, the rise of Russia and, and other uh, growing powers, the United States essentially has been doubling down on one of its few areas of, uh, sadly, global leadership, if we can use that word. It's been using its military to deepen its influence and control on other nations. Um, and bases have played a key role because of especially the way bases can be a kind of slippery slope to deeper military ties and then deeper government-to-government -government relations. M military bases can lead to military exercises, which can lead to, lead to military training, which can lead to arms sales. Again, deepening the relationship between the two countries and in the process, deepening U.S. power, influence, and control over a host nation. So let me just conclude, um, and again, happy to go into any of the details, um, but conclude with some very helpful maps um, from IPAN and, and uh, Tanter and Waddingham, I should, should point out again, these are available. Um, let me conclude by explaining what I think is one of the central dangers. Frequently, U.S. bases overseas are portrayed as something of a gift. They're an economic gift, gift to Darwin, for example, gift to Alice Springs, because of the economic benefits they bring. And they bring some, that's important to point out. Um, but I think primarily the people who've benefited in Australia are the Australian weapons contractors who've had a, something of an inside track on uh, involvement in U.S. weapons systems like the F-35, world's most expensive weapon system, um, and the Australian military, which gets sort of early access to U.S. weaponry uh, and equipment. But I think the, while being portrayed as a gift, frequently, as I, I mentioned in passing last night, U.S. bases overseas are something of a, a Trojan horse. Um, they look like a gift, but they become a way for the United States to deepen its power, its influence, its control over a host nation and host nation policy. Um, one U.S. State Department official uh, pointed out to me that when he walks into a negotiating room, he really likes it when there's a U.S. aircraft carrier off the coast. And think for a second how it would feel if you were in the negotiating room, U.S.-Australian negotiations about pick your policy, and there was a U.S. aircraft carrier off the coast of Melbourne. U.S. bases play much the same role. They're an explicit threat. They're an explicit demonstration of power. And in a variety of complicated ways, they allow the United States to exert its power and control over host nations. Again, I think this global strategy that I've tried to outline quickly, this global political economic strategy to try to maintain U.S. global hegemony, is profoundly dangerous. And I want to underline that in the conflict in, in the Korean Peninsula points to the, the danger. Um, but the danger is, of course, that by encircling China and Russia in particular with a growing number of bases on top of the more than 200 bases that the United States encircled China with for decades, this strategy runs the risk of becoming something of a self-fulfilling prophecy where preparations for a supposed Chinese threat 
supposed Chinese expansionism will actually bring about that very threat, encouraging China to build up its military forces and react uh, in ways that I think the United States would react if the shoe was on the other foot, if we were surrounded by Chinese bases, for example. And again, given that we're here in Australia, I think it's important to point out that this map doesn't show it, and maybe I should add to this, this cartoon, um, that Australia is playing a critical and uh, increasingly intimate role in this U.S. global strategy. Thank you. Yes, that's uh, Professor David Vine, who was uh, speaking at the recent IPAN conference, giving us some background about American bases and their strategic importance uh, to America and our involvement, Australia's involvement. We're completely complicit. We're we're completely involved in, uh, and Pine Gap is the uh, badge of honour that Australia holds. We're going to have a yarn soon with uh, Paul Christie, who is one of the peace activists who uh, did a demonstration at uh, Pine Gap and has now been hauled up to court. He's going to court on Monday. But before we do, I would like to tell you about a thing called The Change. It's a, It's been uh, uh, billed as revolutionary hip-hop theatre. They're going to be uh, performing The Change on Friday this, uh, the 24th of November, Friday the 24th and Saturday the 25th of November. Friday is going to be at 7pm and Saturday 3pm, 25th of November, Underground Car Park, 44 Ham, Hamsworth Street, Collingwood. That's H-A-R, Harmsworth, H-A-R-M-S, W-O-R-T-H Street, 44 Harmsworth Street, Collingwood, underground car park. Sounds like a, a invigorating piece of uh, theatre. And uh, we're going to play a piece by Mini Rage Race. No, Race Rage. <laughs> Get my lips in order on this uh, November the 11th morning. Uh, of course, uh, lest we forget... This is the day. Uh, Burn, performed by Mini Race Rage from the Change Musical, just to give you a taster. Oh. Eight Days of Solidarity with Refugees is a grassroots campaigning to support long-term detained refugees. Between the 12th and 19th of November, there will be vigils, film nights, a community picnic, a solidarity walk and more. Anyone is welcome to make an event or organise solidarity actions. Look up more info on 8 Days of Solidarity for Refugees.wordpress.com. 8 Days of Solidarity is a 3CR supporter. Christopher Hurley. There was a fall. It was uh, what he called compressive force. Prison, quick, save him, get him, what else he had? Put him in prison, we 
let the dogs loose on my people The epitome of evil If this is a crime scene The cops are the criminals Yeah, the cops are the criminals We burn down the courtroom with fire in our hearts They burn down the cops up to hide evidence of scum He tripped, he fell to hell with that bullshit It takes a hard hit for your liver to split Can't you see why there's fire in the fury? Cop found innocent, no blacks on the jewelry Burn, let the walls burn All that lying and killing, when will you learn? Burn, let the walls burn We shattered, we screaming, but she never learned Burn, let the walls burn How many deaths in custody? Till people wake up and see We got a right to live on our land To be free from the bully boy in blue Who wants to kill me Now it's off to Canberra To the tent embassy Ancestors exiled here for punishment Strong spirit resistance unites us Palm Island today is a powder keg One more injustice to ignite us I see history repeating Judiciary cheating Justice we are seeking White overseer controls the fear Serves out a death sentence for speaking Any threat to white authority Is met with cop brutality We face trauma, pain and total poverty But bounce back, welcome in community Any threat to white authority Is met with cop brutality This ain't appeal to will as into apathy Meet us on the front line and off to the tent embassy Burn, let the walls burn All that lying and killing, when will you learn? Burn, let the walls burn We shout it, we scream it, but you never learn Burn Let the walls burn, all that lying and killing When you gon' learn, burn Let the walls burn, we shout it, we scream it Our flames must be heard Any threat to white authority Is met with cop brutality We face trauma, pain and total poverty But bounce back, work room and community Any threat to white authority Is met with cop brutality This ain't a pill to will as into apathy Meet us on the front line and off to the tent embassy Burn Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen and you're listening to 3CR. Yeah, and that was from uh, the United Struggle Project presents The Change, revolutionary hip-hop theatre, and uh, we were listening to Mini Race Rage. The uh, Change musical is going to be on Friday the 7th, uh, Friday the 24th of November at 7pm at the Underground Car Park, 44 Hamsworth Street, Collingwood. If you can't get there on Friday night, you can go on Saturday at 3pm on 25th of November. That's 44 Harmsworth Street, Collingwood. It's going to cost you $10, but nobody is going to be turned away. And we've got Paul Christie on the line. G'day, Paul. How are you? Good morning, Annie. I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm so glad that you are awake and here to talk to us about what happened. You're you're a peace activist who was part of a uh, demonstration, peaceful demonstration at Pine Gap, the apparently uh, American base in near Alice Springs, which doesn't exist. No. Well, you know, officially they will deny any sort of activities that uh, compromise sort of their secrecy, but yeah, they, they they do admit that Pine Gap exists, but they definitely don't want to talk about it too much. That's right. Can you tell us about what happened? What well, got you into uh, trouble? The, uh, 
Yeah, well, I'll set the scene. Last year, uh, Pine Gap um, turned 50. The mm. weather station that's now the CIA um, hegemonic surveillance um, project has... Uh, so last year, a whole lot of people from all around the country and some from overseas came to Alice Springs to highlight this fact that there's, the Pine Gap's been there for 50 years, but also to highlight all the crimes and... Um, uh, secrets that are that are involved with Pine Gap. So it, it was a wholly non-violent um, campaign. It lasted two weeks. Uh, the action that I carried out was um, a prayer action, and we got in trouble for praying uh, in the allegedly the wrong spot, uh, <laughs> which was over some sort of line that was arbitrarily. Uh, written on a piece of paper 50 years ago without any consultation with anybody that actually had any connection with the land. Uh, so, yeah, we went in and, and we prayed and, and, and we got arrested. It's interesting too because I had the impression that they backed, the parliament had to actually backdate some legislation in order to be able to prosecute some of the demonstrators. It's it's not it's not like that as such. But what what did happen was that that the police were they're rather inexperienced with dealing with us, and they rushed a prosecution which required the attorney general to give permission to move forward on. So the initially the judge that was presiding over the court when the when the charges were first laid uh, had to had to throw the case out because. It didn't uh, fulfil the legislative requirements for the prosecution. Ah, so then they had to, but they were they were absolutely wedded to the notion that they had to prosecute you, so they had to bring you back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were very keen to to get at us. So then they clearly they went to the the attorney general and made a request to prosecute us. And the attorney general uh, George Brandis was uh, very happy to comply. Signed his little put his little scribble on a piece of paper and sent it back, and then we were all issued uh, charges and, and summons to appear to court. So what's your charge? I'm charged with uh, trespassing on special provisions land, special provisions defence land. Right, okay. So it is a defence site? It's considered to be... It's a, yeah, it's a joint, joint defence facility. They, but, they claim it is. Yeah, except that uh, Pine Gap actually is almost like Little America, isn't it? It, it doesn't actually, uh, Australian law doesn't really go past that uh, barbed wire fence. Well, that, that, that's the, one of the big points that we, we were there to make, was that um, there's, there's what we believe is uh, war crimes being carried out, crimes against humanity, these, these um, extradition, judicial drone programs are killing uh, lots and lots of innocent people that are dragged up in this huge net the US Army calls the War on Terror and, and their favourite line, enemy combatants, that they seem to put on sort of anybody that they kill that they sort of don't know who they are. And the, the problem is is that Australia has legislation that prohibits um, Australian service personnel from being involved in war crimes. We've signed on to the International Criminal Court, but the United States hasn't. And so the United States are operating in Pine Gap on the basis that they can do whatever they want, but they've in involving Australian service people in that operation, and those service people, Australian service people, are actually violating Australian constitutional law and international agreements that we've been signed that was signed. And of course, Pine Gap is in is an integral part of that 
drone warfare uh, implement, isn't it? Yeah, well, Snowden, Snowden, with his disclosures, let us let us all know that that Pine Gap is a relay station for targeting for all drone program, all, all drone bombing. Pine Gap is one of three um, major bases of the United States Defence Force that uh, are used to triangulate any target on the planet. Yeah, uh, so uh, you're not the only person who's being uh, taken to court, are you? No, no. I'm I'm in a small affinity group called the Peace Pilgrims. We have people in uh, Melbourne, uh, Sydney, Brisbane, and Cairns. Um, so there was uh, a collection of us. Uh, there's I was um, arrested separately because I, I was carrying out my own um, prayer action, and there were five of my other uh, brothers and and um, one of my sisters, Margaret, is uh, were arrested together because they were carrying out. Uh, a very similar but but different action in a different part of the land at a different time and date. So that's why we have um, two weeks of court coming up. Uh, I'm first up and then, then they are coming up on Thursday. Right, okay. And are the cha- charges similar or different? The charges are the same, except uh, one, of the, one of the lads in the other group was um, recording things. They were recording their their um, prayer action on the top of the hill, and he's charged with uh, uh, using a recording device in a prohibited area. Oh, that's very interesting, isn't it? Uh, all right. So, uh, uh, have you got legal representation, or are you going there uh, just by yourself? We've had we've had uh, we've had tremendous support, legal tremendous legal support leading up to the case. But it's a Supreme Court case, and um, no, we don't have any legal representation in court. We're all representing ourselves. But we have lawyers assisting us in framing our case and presenting our our argument. Do you see this as an opportunity to get your message out, get the message out about Pine Gap, or will it, will it be in camera? Um, it, there'll be no no recordings going on during the court. Uh, that's sort of generally the same with every Supreme Court. So there's going to be uh, uh, reporters reporting the case. Um, yeah, we believe that that any opportunity to be able to speak in public and present the truth to the public that is being hidden from them and the crimes that are being hidden from them is important. And um, we utilise every opportunity to do that. The, we, when we do our actions, we're not doing them because we're going to break laws. We're doing them because they need to be done. The laws are things that are in our way. So, so we sort of work out in a strategic way what is feasible, what is fair, what is um, what is uh, going to be safe for us. And uh, yeah, so some, sometimes court court actions are really important. And other times they're just a big part of the campaign. And this is a big part of the campaign. Now we know that. Uh uh, that uh, people often believe that uh, or see uh, economic uh, positive economic outcomes in inverted commas from having an American base nearby. Uh, do you get any uh, flack from the community, or do have you had any community support up there? Yeah, oh, we've got tremendous community support, and yeah, we do have. Uh, there is a considerable amount of criticism. Um, Alice Springs is split. In terms of supporting Pine Gap, there's a lot of people that don't appreciate Australia's being um, submerged into the war culture of the United States and is is um, is part of the military-industrial complex. They don't think that it's um, 
it's a good thing to be earning money uh, assisting in the destruction of nations. Other people seem to be able to put that aside and enjoy the benefits. And do you get any uh, First Peoples response? Say that again? Do you get any Indigenous Peoples response? Do we have Indigenous people um, responding respo- to this experience? Yeah, yeah. Do they yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we're being supported by a lot of Indigenous peoples here. We we just just last night we had a beautiful smoking ceremony where they welcomed us and blessed us and wished us all the best. The people, the people of the land here, the Indigenous people who who are connected to their land and who are, have integrity, um, really support us. Then there's uh, like like any community, there's people that are uh, more concerned about what they can get for themselves, and they're not really interested in in supporting us because they do enjoy the economic benefits. Now you're going to go to court. The outcomes may be financial, or it may be uh, prison. What can people do uh, from afar to support what you're doing? So we have a we have a website called uh, closedpinegap.org. On that website, there's a number of Avenues people can utilize to support us. We have an open letter to George Brandis, um, circulating around the community right now, and we, we encourage anyone and everyone to sign on to that. We're also raising some money for, for the cost of the campaign. It, it's, it's not cheap to, uh, wage peace in this, in this country. Um, and, uh, yeah, also joining our mailing list and, and a few other and uh, just spreading the word. All of those things are, are vital and important. Well, good luck on Monday, Paul. I really appreciate that, Annie. I, I think, um, you know, like I, I'm a bit of a stickler with, with terms and, and the term good luck I don't really appreciate, but wishing me all the best would be the one I'd like to hear. Well, yeah, I wish you all the best. You, you're obviously... Thank you so much, Annie. <laughs> Thanks for getting up and talking to us. It's a pleasure, and, and yeah, I, I really appreciate you making the time on your station to, to let me speak. Palestine National Day is being celebrated on November the 15th, 5pm at Federation Square. Join us as we raise the Palestinian flag. Hear Palestinian youth sing the Palestinian National Anthem. Palestinian band 48 will perform traditional and resistance music. Join our dance and dubkey crew and enjoy Palestinian food and culture in this family event. See you there. Palestine National Day, November 15th, 5pm at Federation Square. Be there. A 3CR supporter. CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. The Solidarity and Defence Fund is a democratically controlled fund that materially supports activists who are facing legal sanctions or other problems due to their stand against injustice and oppression. All contributors who pledge at least $5 a month can take part in collectively making decisions about how the fund is used. 
Your contributions support and grow movements for social justice and defend activists in the fight for a better world. For more information or to join, go to patreon.com forward slash solidarity defense fund. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash solidarity defense fund. A 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Hannah Smiley from WA. When I'm in Melbourne, I listen to 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. You can listen on your digital radio or stream it live and subscribe at 3cr.org.au. A weak solidarity breaking team listener win, as we said last week, when the no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people said they wanted to leave our Manus Island holiday concentration camp, we told them they couldn't leave. And now when they say they don't want to leave, we tell them they must leave. And when the goody-goody, long-haired, commie, greeny, black armband brigade say these people are true blue Aussies' responsibility, the Minister for Concentration Camps raise a wire and sink the boats Peter Duffer says, No! It's the PNG government's responsibility, and the PNG government says it is true blue Aussie's responsibility, so apparently no one's responsible. That'll teach him for trying to take advantage of our goodness and compassion. And then when the PNG government says, OK, we'll decide where they go, the Duffer tells them they can't do that because although it's their responsibility, they can't make the decisions. And maybe denying responsibility while making all the decisions really means therefore irresponsibility. But the Duffer says those who criticise his humane role to help these illegals are the irresponsibles. Logic runs riot through all this. Pete and the Socialist Party agree the No Proper Papers lot can go anywhere in the whole world except True Blue Aussie, which is where they wanted to go, although after years of endless imprisonment for seeking refuge, they mightn't be quite so enthusiastic about True Blue Aussie. Those people whom the Duffer knows are the irresponsibles have been taking to the streets in their thousands, including yesterday morning and last night, to say, how's this for irresponsibility? We should bring all these no proper papers lot here to True Blue Aussie, to flood us. What would that do to our multicultural society of which the Duffer is so proud? The Duffer and other sensitive souls are advised to keep away from construction sites following an outrageous finding by the Fair Work True Blue Aussie No Longer Work Choices Just Looks Like It Commissioner that swearing, foul, foul language, is a normal part of life on building sites. And even Commissioner Bernie Reardon said the words copulating female genital, if you follow listener, I'm trying to handle the matter sensitively, was a common expression across all walks of life. Well, I'll be bleeped. Oh, sorry, listener, that slipped out. I should have issued a language warning. Naturally, the BHP for bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter offshoot, South 30 to us, nil to you, is appealing the decision that reinstated a union, an evil union delegate, and the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Bacalia Kosh, the workers, is up in arms, righteously declaring, bullying behaviour such as this should have no place in any true blue Aussie workplace. Uh, that's construction site workplaces, Macadia. In the bloody, uh, excuse me, I'm so upset, in the commission, this is bullying behaviour toward caring employers. No, the real Macadia we all know and love said, hardly a day goes by without courts finding thuggish and bullying behaviour by the evil construction union.
The foul language, of course, gets worse when that most evil, abusive and thuggish word of all, scab, is attached to the string of invectives. Must say I consider this use of the C word as a pejorative, as, as abuse, sexist, and I'm sure the respectable company boards and their four men, presume almost all are men, four men and the very rare women and site managers, oppose it for that reason and would never dream of using any of this language themselves. But a sacking offence for swearing at someone, usually a scab or a caring employer acolyte representative on a building site? Unlike the rate-rigging case currently being levelled at the worst-packed bank in which tapes revealed what's described as expletive-laden trading floor culture. Now, there's no comparison between uncouth building workers who earn far more than uncouth workers should earn, proving again how evil their union is, using expletive-laden language on a worksite, where, let's face it, there's absolutely no need for that sort of thing, and a trading floor where the pressures of transmitting billions of dollars per second across the world warrants not just the most reasonable, highly inflated salaries they earn, salaries not common wages, but also such relief of the pressure. Expletive-laden language is a natural part of that very important world, a world of expletive-laden culture. Where would we be, listener, without the trading flaws? After all, here we are talking about couth, sophisticated contributors to making the world a better place for all of us. Except the all of us who happen to be uncouth construction workers, where there's no stress whatever, unless they unnecessarily get a bit stressed out by the potential for death and injury. But then again, that's no reason for foul language. All they have to do is raise their health and safety concerns with their caring employer and then just pay the multi-million fine for breaking the law. There was probably a little bit of expletive-laden language in a few boardrooms this week as the Paradise Papers looked hellish from the board's perspective. And even in Her Most Gracious Majesty's Palace or Castle, whatever home she was in, when the proverbial hit. Although Her Most Gracious would never use that sort of language. And let me make it clear, nothing illegal has been exposed. Ask them and they will tell us, we meet our legal tax obligations. Fossil big polluter Glen got caught, met its legal obligations by extracting millions in grants and subsidies and handouts and sundry forms of corporate welfare which, doubtless, contributes to its multi-billion profit on which it meets its legal tax obligations. Thank goodness the Paradise Papers release didn't distract Glengott Court from maintaining its core business of making those billions, meeting its legal tax obligations, as its lockout of workers at the Oakey North Mine in Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land hits 140 days this weekend, still resists the evil union outrageous claims like wages, conditions, going home nights, crippling attacks on poor Glengott Court's rights. Were it a strike, illegal, the evil union would face millions in fines, perhaps jail, but even though it's a lockout, legal, fortunately, the evil union and evil union members are still copying justified millions in penalties for breaking the company's rule that they can't use foul language, can't intimidate good workers who just want to do an unfair day's work for an unfair day's pay by calling them oh, it's outrageous, calling them scabs. Thank goodness that at last it is a crime to call a scab a scab. 
let us also make it clear that although Her Most Gracious Majesty's investments via the usual suspect tax havens, or more correctly non-tax havens, ended up charging the poorest of poor of her subjects 99 point something percent interest, not even a 100% note, which should guarantee they'd be out of debt in no time, trying to pay off their 99 point something interest debts while having to maintain through the taxes PAYE workers can't avoid, Her Most Gracious Majesty and her collection of inbreds in the luxury to which they are accustomed. She gets it coming and going, although coming and coming might be more correct. And keep it coming! See one notion if that's that appalling Hoonsun, so-called Battler's Bus, lived up to its name and broke down in Rockhampton Thursday as that appalling continued her state election charm campaign. It made a loud hissing sound, which campaign staff at first thought was just that appalling who had seen a woman in a hijab walking past. She did use some of that expletive-laden language same day, although maybe it's also culture among parliamentarians, probably used the odd expletive in describing the broken-down bus, but we didn't hear that bit. No, which brings us to, we never thought Socialist Party numbers cruncher power broker Sam Dasty are we doing enough for the rich would be, would be the good in a week that was peace, but after neo-Nazis verbally assaulted him in a Footscray pub, Sam became the hero, and the deep intelligence of the gentlemen who just loved True Blue Aussie was highlighted by one of them, Neil Hitler's son, denying they were racist as they told Dasty, are we doing enough to go back to Iran, a terrorist, a monkey amid a raft of slurs? What is racist about what we said, Hitler's son asked. Now, now let me think, what is racist? Let us think, listener, it's obvious they don't think that is. But in fairness, racism did raise its ugly head. He called me a redneck, Hitler's son almost cried. And that's a racist slur, displaying his deep understanding of the subject. And that appalling, exploiting, expletive-laden parliamentary language culture? She attacked Dasty Are We Doing, our week that was newfound hero, calling him a language, calling him a, a language warning here, listener, language warning listener, a smart-ass who was playing up the whole thing so he could sell a book. Appalling seems to know Sam hired the neo-Nazis as a publicity stunt. Meanwhile, she refused to join others at a local McDonald's for a bite to eat after the bus packed up because it sold halal meals. And of course, it was Sam Dasty, are we doing enough, who on election night jokingly offered to take her out to, for, for an halal meal, unleashing her great sense of humour. No halal! And we know she didn't avoid McDonald's for health reasons because she took refuge in a fish and chip shop, back to her roots, so to speak, where she indulged in battered deep-fried chips, given gratis by the proprietor, who must also be a deep little political thinker. On deep, big political thinkers, finally, following this week's this week's U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world mass shooting, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor did not describe the white Christian ex-train killer mass murderer as a terrorist, because he can't be, but did explain mental health or non-health and not guns kill, leaving us to worry about his safety. Good morning. Hi, I'm Stuart. 
Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. Eight Days of Solidarity with Refugees is a grassroots campaigning to support long-term detained refugees. Between the 12th and 19th of November, there will be vigils, film nights, a community picnic, a solidarity walk and more. Anyone is welcome to make an event or organise solidarity actions. Look at more info on 8daysofsolidarityforrefugees.wordpress.com 8 Days of Solidarity is a 3CR supporter. Yeah, and you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we've got a couple of the organisers in for the eight days of refugee solidarity. Good morning, you two. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah. Now tell us, how did this all come about, this idea of eight days of solidarity? Um. So I guess uh, for a, a long time, a lot of people have been visiting a bunch of people in detention in Australia, well, in Broadmeadows specifically, and it seems that people are continuously being in there for quite long periods of time. So whether it's been now eight years is the longest amount of time or there's people who have been in for three years, four years because of the visa processing being so slow and all that sort of stuff. And um, also there's a lot of people who've gotten out of detention who still see their friends in there as well. Yeah, so uh, you've, uh, of course, once you stop uh, being in uh, deten- detained, you don't forget the people that you've left behind there. Yeah, the, you know, they are locked up um, more than eight years. So that's uh, too hard to struggle one place. Uh, uh, they have lost their lifetime. So And also a lot of Australian people don't know about this uh, things happening in for the refugee, anyone come by board. So they, this uh, eight days uh, program also let know the more you know community people and bring uh, uh, their news outside to the detention center. Yeah. Because at the moment, of course, what's going on in Manus has brought a lot of attention to the refugee plight and Australia's. Uh, behaviour towards refugees uh, but uh, this, your, what you're doing is actually telling people that even in Australia, mm-hmm. in Australia's borders, yeah. there are a lot of people who are, uh, their lives have been stopped effectively by Australian policy. Yes and the Manus crew are included in this because they are also long-term uh, in detention, you know, three years, four years, such like that. So, yeah, it definitely includes them. And I guess people sometimes think that just people are in detention or they're in this situation, but it's actually the length of time which draws, you know, that means that people's mental health deteriorates, their connection with community um, changes and, you know, the such a long amount of time not being able to see family, not being able to use mobile phones and all that sort of restrictions that happen. Yeah, okay. Uh, so when you say eight days of solidarity, when does it start? Uh, it starts on Sunday 
So we start tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow. Okay. Yeah, uh, yes. Eight days we have a different every day. So Sunday start and every days we have a different uh, program. So some other people also uh, doing on on behalf of name uh, for the refugees. Some uh, example, uh, Mums for Refugees, and also uh, Tamil Refugee Council, and same like uh, the other fronts of. Uh, Uh, refugees people are the community they organize some activities so so yeah. this this uh, eight days of solidarity is a spontaneous grassroots um uh, uh, idea yeah and as a, and you've come up with a core group of events for each of the days yeah and other people have also spontaneously uh, offered up events as well Yeah, well the the whole point of the campaign is that people can do their own actions, do their own events and show solidarity in the way that's appropriate for them or the ways that they they can do. You know, so whatever their connections are or whatever their talent is or their interests, they can do something for the campaign with that. So if somebody is a musician and wants to do a gig and you know say this gig is in support of this, well that's wonderful. So people can do things like that. And they could even do your busk yes. with a sign. Yes, exactly. Exactly. See? So many options. So many options. No, all right, so let's get down to your core events. So on <laughs> Sunday, what's happening? Uh, Sunday, uh, we start picnic. Uh, so we're gathering, um, uh, we bring uh, more people. So we're going to talk about the about uh, in the day center, uh, day center. And also we're going to talk about the uh, last eight years, the lock up, locked up people. so uh, that's a good chance uh, tell more uh, new uh, you know more new people to mm. about them so yeah. yeah so where's the picnic going to be at so that's at flagstaff gardens, gardens. and it's from one o'clock. and people can come there's going to be games people can make banners there'll be music like it's whatever people bring that's what's going to be there great okay and so those banners and the music is going to lead to some other event down the track in the week is that right Oh, there is going to be so many things on during the week. <laughs> so come on, tell us. So on Monday there's uh, No One Is Illegal Day. And so that's um, No One Is Illegal is something that's really um, well known in Europe and other places. Uh, just I think it's self-explanatory, No One's Illegal. So it's just encouraging people to do spontaneous actions, do lots of photos, just so that people who are in detention can also see you know, people's responses from that. Okay, and so, uh, and that's a general day. Are you going to have some focal point on that Monday? No, it's just going to be to get people, like, involved in whichever way they can. Okay, all right, so on Tuesday? Tuesday, we're actually going to be here at 3CR doing an art mural. Oh, fantastic, and is that going to be on the side of our wall? Yes. Oh, that's wonderful. Mm. So when are you going to start early, or? Well, we're going to have to... organize the space and so from 12 o'clock people can come and make some art oh fantastic okay so wednesday uh wednesday's uh mums mums of refugee they're doing some uh action actions okay and other um long-term visitors uh, visitors mean they're community people oh, who go out yeah. to the various re- uh, the one in broad meadows in yeah. particular yeah, yeah. they uh, one of uh group of friends they're organizing um uh, stories from sto- detention yeah stories from detention center okay so all right two, two things are happening on wednesdays okay and on thursday 
There's a Refugee Solidarity Film Night at Siteworks in Brunswick. Okay. So it's going to be a bunch of different documentaries focusing on refugees, no one is illegal, all that sort of things. Okay, and on Friday? On Friday there's going to be an eight-hour vigil throughout the city and it's going to join the rally for Manus later uh, on. Okay, great. Mm. And uh, and Saturday? Saturday. Saturdays uh, we're going to walk uh, eight kilometres walk. So that's mean uh, eight years. Ah, uh, oh, yes. So, yeah. Okay. And so tell us about the website where people can actually get all the details. So that's eight days of solidarity for refugees.wordpress.com. Great. Thanks for coming in and telling us. Yeah. And also on the Sunday, the Tamil Refugee Council is doing the end event. Okay. Which is in Dandenong. Oh, yeah. great. Cool. Thanks for coming in. Cool. Thanks Thank so you. much.
You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and uh, we were just listening to Asylum by Combat Wombat. Great little band, a little outfit. And in the studio we've got uh, Jill from who's part of the uh, Sampari Art Exhibition that's coming up. G'day Jill, how are you? Good, thanks. Yeah, so Ken, this is the third year that the Sampari Art Exhibition is going to be on but it's part of a bigger affair, isn't it? Yes, it's hosted by the Women's Office of the Federal Republic of West Papua in Melbourne and um, we do it in association with the community. Um, It's very much a a celebration of West Papuan culture as well as art. So we include a very intense public events schedule as well and I can talk about that too. But um, we're gearing up to it. We're a small group. Uh, The Women's Office is... Uh, I guess we punch well above our weight and uh, we're always looking for new volunteers to help us, um, particularly getting the the word out and we um, acknowledge and thank 3CR for their support in that too. Um, So the organising team have um, are pleased to announce that the selectors have finished their job. There's an exciting, very varied collection of really good works of art um, we're really oh, that's pleased. a bit of a buzz. So, so yeah. what you're saying is that people actually offer their art and then the group of people decide which ones are oh, going to be hung. It's curated. So yeah. um, the selectors have chosen the works to be included, um, varied in um, subject matter. Um, the, the whole exhibition is designed to inspire and educate and promote the West Papuan people um, their struggle for self-determination, culture, environment of West Papua because it is such a rich and varied country which is under the uh, domination and uh, um, oppression, I would say, (laughs) of the Indonesian government as we speak. Um, So it is a – we promote it as a West Papua celebration and, of course, the public events are a a major feature of that in the wonderful – gallery of the ACU um, premises and the, amongst the beautiful artworks. 
the uh, tell us a little bit more about the. Um, you said there's an intensive program around the exhibition. Yes, um, like the last two years, um, we have special forums uh, which engage people. Um, include the community and performing artists. This year there is, again, a spoken word event. Um, what are you have... doing? Because uh, uh, last year you had a uh, debate, didn't you? Yes, uh, there's a debate. This time the question is, should Australia support West Papuan independence? Mm. And that is um, uh, between two very strong teams and it will be mediated by the uh, head of debating Victoria... I don't have his name with me right Doesn't now. Yeah. Um, so it's structured as a, a disciplined debate. Um, there's also a really interesting forum on Sampari itself. The word um, represents uh, the Morning Star, which is very important to West Papuans. Um, it is the story... Well, I won't tell you the story of Sampari right now, but it's a, a discussion and forum amongst experts from a range of of uh, religions and cultural and scientific backgrounds on the meaning of the morning star, which ha- we know as Venus, and um, that will be very interesting too. Um, we've also got the very popular Melanesian Culture Day, uh, which is a recognition and acknowledgement and a thank you to the Melanesian community of countries, and uh, that will include food and festivities and uh, everybody's welcome to join us at that as well. And, of course, the popular Rent Collective Christmas Party, which will also be held in the gallery. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about... I mean, I've just been uh, reading up about... Um, uh, there's been a... December the 1st, there's been a call-out for people to uh, show their support for the Morning Star, Star flag because, uh, actually, if someone in... Um, it, it's a... A contentious, it's a, a point of contention, isn't it, the Morning Star flag? The, the flag, the West Papuan flag as we know it, which mm. includes the Morning Star and the five or seven blue stripes, um, is absolutely important to the West Papuans and it represents their hope and resilience and resolve to uh, become an independent state. Um, and on the 1st of December, back in early... 60s, 1962, I think, um, when they raised the flag, that was um, uh, brought down and and it was the start of the subjugation by the Indonesian um, military on the people and the flag is the representative of their, as I said, their hope to um, for the future. Now, the 1st of December is promoted throughout the world. It's a global flag-raising day in Victoria, we have a number of ceremonies which will be held by organisations that support independence for West Papua, including, I'm pleased to say, the um, Darabin, Moreland and Yarra City Councils are supporting that by raising the flag. And also, I think, the uh, Victorian Trades Hall and Geelong Trades Hall and possibly, I think, also Castlemaine. I'm not quite sure where in Castlemaine. So a number of communities around Victoria as well as in Melbourne are raising the flag on that day and we hope to get around to most of them to join them and um, to speak about the um, the struggle. Yeah, us. yeah. Well, hopefully people will be able to get badges. Um, maybe 3CR will be able to get some badges. We, we and, can certainly arrange and that. And then people can uh, show their support by wearing uh, a Morningstar badge yeah. on December the 1st. Now, these... I, 
Yeah, I just wanted to add that in Melbourne, of course, our 1st of December event will be graced by the very special and unique replica um, outrigger canoe, which has been made by the community. Uh, This will feature as part of the props in the production called The Change, the United Struggle Project production. um, Which we were talking about earlier in the program, yeah, which is on the 24th of November. That canoe will be pushed and rolled, I believe it's on wheels, uh, to some of the 1st of December events. So that's very exciting. And then finally... And that's that's the boat that uh, brought... Some of the uh, West Palkarans away from, yes. they were fleeing. Yes, the 43 in 2006 yes. who arrived on Australia's shores. So that boat will uh, feature at one of the events on the 1st of December and, of course, in the production uh, earlier than that on the 24th and 25th of November. Um, both, I think, the the change performances and the 1st of December global flag raising are Facebook events and people can go to Facebook and find them. They're public so anyone can find those events there and register to get updates about them. Finally, on the at the end of the 1st of December events, the boat will be wheeled and taken to the ACU Art Gallery and it'll be a major exhibit in Sampari Exhibition, bringing together, I guess you would say, the art, culture and political struggle of the West Papuans. Oh, that's fantastic. Mm. So it's uh, the exhibition starts Friday the 8th of December and Correct. it goes to Sunday the 17th of December. Yes. And it's going to be at the ACU Gallery, which is 26 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy, which is just up the top, just across the road from the, the hospital, yes. effectively. great location, great public transport connections. We invite everybody, uh, supporters and friends, along to the opening Um, And, of course, we invite people to check our website for details of the dates and the content of each of the public events. You can find those on the DFAT uh, West Papua website, and that's D-F-A-I-T, not like the Australian DFAT. Yeah, right, I was going to say, that's a bit surprising. It's the Department of Foreign Affairs Immigration and Trade for the Federal Republic of West Papua, which is a mouthful, but if you search under DFAIT, F-A-I-T, West Papua, you will find that. Um, And also on Facebook under Sampari Exhibition, there's a page as well as a Facebook event, uh, which lists all the other events. So we urge people to join the event on Facebook, if you're a Facebook type person, to get updates and to access the other events as part of it.
And Jill, you've got a couple of other things you want to tell people about. Uh, yes, we, um, as I said, we're a very small group at the Women's Office of the Federal Republic of West Papua. We're looking for volunteers to help us promote Sampari Exhibition and um, particularly postering out in the street, which we know 3CR listeners are very good at. Um, if you are able and willing to do some postering and even some gallery attendance as well to help us with the events, um, could you please either email us at frwpwomensoffice.sampari. Say that again. F for Freddie, R for rats, <laughs> FRWP, the Federal Republic of West Papua, frwpwomensoffice.sampari at gmail.com with your contact details, name and email, or telephone us and leave a message uh, with the same contact details at 0420-250-389. You have to say that again. Yes. 0420-250-389. We would really appreciate people to come and help us with postering and attendance in the gallery. Um, And one last announcement about the event coming up Friday, next Friday on the 17th of November, starting at 6 o'clock at Darabin uh, Preston City Hall is an event uh, to warm everybody up to the idea of the 1st of December celebrations. Uh, it's called Who Are the People of West Papua? And um, it's being put on by the Darabin and Moreland Councils together. You can find information about that on the Moreland Council website under Events Recreation or you can go to the Voice of West Papua Facebook page. As you know, Voice of West Papua is a 3CR program on Tuesday nights at 6.30 and you can register and find the information there. And that will be a fantastic night. Um, Everybody's invited. There'll be food and entertainment, photo exhibitions, speeches and a real fantastic opportunity to meet and greet everybody and network amongst the community there. So if you know nothing about West Papua, it's an excellent introduction. And, um, of course, you'll hear about the 1st of December event itinerary there as well. Thanks very much, Jill. Thanks for coming in. And that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. We'll go out again with uh, George Tallick. Who can you... Uh, who, who can't enjoy a George Tallick number?
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.